Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey, and today's episode, I speak to underwater archaeologist Peter Campbell. We talk about his work exploring shipwrecks, caves, sunken cities, and the process of underwater archaeology, which I thought was super fascinating, and I just really wanted to get a little bit more insight into that profession what's going on out there underneath the ocean surface hope you enjoy the conversation as always you can find show notes and all the links that we talk about at ancientheroes.net i'm currently a lecturer at cranfield university uh, in the forensic institute um, where i do investigation of crimes against culture but then also maritime archaeology. So it's a, a mixed, oh. I'm working on land and underwater these days. That sounds awesome. Um, but until recently, I was at the Albanian Center for Marine Research um, and at the British School at Rome. Um, and uh, I've been working on underwater projects um, all over the world, uh, but primarily in the Eastern Mediterranean. Cool, cool. So uh, great. Uh, that sounds like a, a really cool career and profession and lately on the ancient heroes podcast it, it seems like we've been trending toward talking to more and more archaeologists uh and and i've certainly become more interested in what archaeologists do and what their life is like and so when i saw this underwater archaeology field and and you were one of the prominent people i just wanted to reach out and see if you'd talk to us so can you can you give us a little bit of an idea about uh what underwater archaeology is and how you became an underwater archaeologist. Yes. So I, I will just start by saying that I think right now is the best time to be an archaeologist more than any other point in time. More discoveries are being made than at any other point, um, even though, you know, they're not necessarily the big finds like, um, like Chichen Itza or, you know, these huge lost cities, but the discoveries are incredible and they're coming quickly. And that's especially true in underwater archaeology. And, um, and so I got my start in underwater archaeology. I was a terrestrial archaeologist. I had um, finished with my degree, my undergraduate degree, and uh, I was excavating in, in Cyprus and Greece. And, you know, we were excavating layer by layer, uh, just dirt, <laughs> you know, occasional artifacts. And it was super boring. And I was like, I have to, I can't believe I just spent four years getting a degree. I have to find a more exciting version of this. So I applied for an underwater program uh, for a master's and got in there at East Carolina University. Um, I did eventually get excited about terrestrial archaeology, but <laughs> not before I had done my degree in maritime. And um, yeah, I just, uh, I, you know, I wanted something that was thrilling, that would allow me to travel um, and, and uh, shipwrecks, lost cities, sunken cities, um, underwater caves kind of really did it for me. And um, it's really a growth area. There's more and more maritime archaeologists. There's more and more funding and projects happening. Um, and, and like I said, a lot of discoveries being made. So uh, yeah, that's how I got into it was I wanted something exciting. And um, I certainly got what I paid for. Awesome. Awesome. So is the it's basically a subfield within archaeology, it sounds like. Are, is, the, is kind of the, the methods, the principles, the approach all in agreement with terrestrial archaeology, basically? And it's, 
Yeah, it's it's in the U.S. It's situated within anthropology and, and then under archaeology, and then in in Britain and Europe, it's situated within archaeology. And the theory is still all the same. You know, you're still looking at you know how people moved in the past. You know what they were trading, how their societies developed. All the same sorts of questions. It's just working underwater. The methods are a bit different. Um, so like with a shipwreck, you don't necessarily have the same kind of stratigraphy that you would have on a city on land where you have layers built up, you know, uh, it's often referred to as a time capsule. You know, the ship sank at a certain time and it's just kind of sitting there on the seafloor. Right. You don't have subsequent layers. Um, but you do have cities in the sea and those have the same sorts of layers as on land. So they have the same processes. They just have an added layer of water on, on the very top. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly archaeology is archaeology, whether it's in space or underwater or on land, it's still going to be archaeology. And you're still trying to put together narratives of how people lived in the past. And um, it's just, you know, we have an added tank and uh, a couple of methods that differ slightly for, you know, we have very limited time. Um, so in the case of my project in Greece, we found 58 shipwrecks in a very small area. Uh, which is the largest concentration of ancient shipwrecks that's been found. And uh, for many of those sites, they've only been visited once because we have such small field seasons in archaeology. You know, generally you only have a month to do your field work. And, um, and our, due to the size of our team, we have about 20 divers. Um, we're surveying vast areas and they'll find a wreck. And so some of the wrecks have only been visited once and we've got photos and a, a brief map and we've put a, you know, a point on the map, but otherwise, you know, it's going to have to wait for future seasons. So because of the restrictions on air, the methods in underwater archaeology um, have to be much more efficient than they would be on land. I see. Okay. So let's talk about this project in, in Greece, 58 shipwrecks. Is that what you said? Yes. So this is uh, Forni. It, it's a little archipelago that's in the Eastern uh, Aegean. It's south of Samos and Icaria and kind of above the Dodecanese. And it's, it's not far from the coast of Turkey. And um, it's a little archipelago kind of forgotten by time. And um, it's, it's, it's hard to describe because it's a little tiny community and, a, and about 13 islands and islets. There's no reason for there to be any shipwrecks there. If you look at the much bigger islands that were famous in antiquity, like Samos that had Polycrates, the tyrant, and you know, there's all these you know, you know, stories written about it. Uh, whether it's by Herodotus or Thucydides, you know, it appears in all of the ancient texts. It only has two or three known shipwrecks. But this little archipelago that was minor, it's only mentioned a few times in antiquity, um, has 58. And, and that's only, I have to stress, that's only the starting point. I mean, we still have uh, more than half the coastline to survey. We still have all the deep water sections to survey. So there could be 100, there could be 200. I mean, who knows how many are there? Um, this archipelago has a huge concentration and that is because what we're learning is its navigational significance that this was a critical point in the navigational landscape of the aegean rather than a place where they were loading and unloading cargo and so if you were a sailing ship and even today you see this with sailing ships if you're a sailing ship you have to pass by this this little island group based on the winds and the locations of the other islands and that sort of thing um, it, it's just a necessity Whereas it's been forgotten because with the advent of propellers and, and steam engines and, and modern engines, you can just sail up and down through the center of the Aegean. But if you're a sailing ship, due to the winds, you have to pass by this island group. 
And just over time, every 50 years or every 100 years, a ship would sink due to a galley fire or losing their rudder and crashing or a storm, that sort of thing. They would sink in this archipelago. So we're, so these aren't, at first when you said that, I thought, oh, this, for whatever reason, I assume this must have happened at a similar time or, you know, all of these ships were similar. What you're describing sounds like this happened over a longer period of time. Exactly. Yeah. It's a function of the volume of trade in every time period. So our earliest wreck dates to the mid 6th century BC. And then the latest one is the 1920s. There's actually beer bottles on it from the 1920s. Um, but the majority of them are from the archaic period, so um, that 6th century BC wreck, through the late Roman period, so uh, in the, into the 6th, 7th, 8th century AD. They're, they're kind of all clustered within that ancient period, and then you see a steep decline after that. Okay, so that's almost a thousand-year period, is that right? Yes, Okay. yeah, and we actually have a very cool area uh, it's cool for us as archaeologists. It's horrific for the ancient mariners. We call it the White Cliffs of Death, uh, oh, just yeah. <laughs> amongst our team. It's this place called Aspercavos, which means White Cliffs. And we found we're up to seven wrecks now uh, in a very small area along the White Cliffs. And it, they're sheer cliffs. I mean, over 100 meters high. So, I mean, it, it's, there was, if you crash there, there's no chance of escape. I mean, if you were in a storm and you crashed there, it's the end of you. There's nowhere to go. Um, so unfortunately, many mariners probably died on these cliffs. And um, so we have wrecks from the 6th century BC until the 7th century AD. And they're almost all sunk in chronological order. It was very kind of them to do that for us. So you can actually swim from the 6th century BC to the 7th century AD and look at the changes in the amphoras along the way. Uh, because most of the cargoes that we find on the seafloor are amphoras, uh, these large ceramic jugs that were the barrels of antiquity. They would transport um, wine and olive oil and fish sauce and that sort of thing. And so we actually found on the, on the 6th century BC wreck, we found a grist, uh, a grist stone, uh, for, which you would use with your hands um, for grain, for grinding grain on board the ship. And on the 7th century AD shipwreck, we actually found one almost of the same design. So it's this incredible, like time condenses and falls flat and you're swimming over all of these shipwrecks and you can just see the different changes and the different cultures and that sort of thing. But some things are the same across time. There's always a need to grind grain. And the easiest way to do that is, you know, with a stone with your hands in the same shape. So it's, it's a fascinating, uh, incredibly helpful for archaeology um, collection of shipwrecks awesome awesome so in terms of the process with this so are you are you going down there and you are primarily documenting what you come across or are you extracting things from these ships um i'm sure that there's a it's a tricky process with trying to if you are extracting things trying not to disturb and destroy anything in the process what is what is the goal of these dives or are they all different depending on the site? Yes, that's a good question. So it's different depending on the project. Um, but with this project in Forney, for example, um, we started this project based on information from sponge divers and fishermen. Um, George Kutsaflakis, the Greek director, and I um, were sharing information that we had learned from speaking with, with different people who had remembered seeing shipwrecks in different places. And we had a bunch of islands around the Aegean where, where wrecks had been spotted. And we saw a cluster 
during 40 and we said, okay, that's a good place to start, especially because George is from Icaria, so nearby. So he knows the area very, very well. And there is uh, one spear fisherman in particular, Manos Miticus, who's a local Forney resident um, who had spotted, he had created a, a map of all these different places where he had seen ceramics in the sea. So we went there and we started checking these sites and we were shocked to find that, you know, a lot of times you get reports of ceramics in the sea and it's just a few bits and pieces and that sort of things. We were finding full wrecks. Um, not 100% of the time, about 50% of the time, but I'll take those odds over, you know, doing a blind survey any day of the week. And, um, but it was very clear that a number of these wrecks had been looted. Uh, and we knew from speaking with sponge divers that wrecks had been looted in, in 40 since the 50s. Uh, in particular, there was one wreck that had these kind of carrot-shaped amphoras that come from the Black Sea. And the sponge diver remembers seeing hundreds and hundreds of them. But when we dove on the site, there was only broken fragments left. There were no complete examples or anything else. So we knew that people had been taking amphoras for decades. Uh, so it's, it's then a bit of research, but also a bit of rescue archeology span and, and protection of these sites. So Greece is fantastic because they really place an emphasis on long-term preservation and scientific study and having those things available. So on every rec, we collected examples that would be conserved and taken to Athens and, and, and properly conserved so they could be stored in air. Because when you bring something out of the water that's been underwater for centuries, it tends to splinter and crack without proper conservation. So the uh, Greek government put the resources and funding and people in place to properly recover um, examples. So if we have a wreck that has one type of amphora only, it's a full cargo that's homogenous, we'll bring up one example. But if we have a wreck that has five different types of amphoras, we'll bring up one of each. And those are taken to Athens and then they're kept in a storehouse for future generations um, to, to study. So if 50 years from now, um, God forbid looting has continued and there's no good examples left on the seabed, those examples will still be available for access by researchers and potentially on display in museums um, for, for people to access in the future. So it's really like a good long-term initiative. Uh, but everything else we leave on the seafloor because the, the aim of maritime archaeology is largely um, preservation in situ. Um, there's a lot of ships that were brought up in their entirety in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And um, they were brought up, they were cleaned and all this stuff and put on display in museums, nothing left on the seafloor. And now we have these incredible methods of understanding spatial distribution on the seafloor, of DNA analysis. You can swab the interior and get DNA and all that kind of stuff. But all those ships that were fully raised, we can't do those methods anymore uh, because they've been cleaned and all that sort of thing. Ah. So we don't know what methods they're gonna have in the future. So the best thing we can do is bring up just a few examples and leave everything else on the seafloor for future generations. Okay. I mean, both for tourism, but also for scientific study. Wow. Okay. So when you say DNA, um, this is DNA of, of substances that are, that are being yes, preserved? Of the things that were transported. Yeah. So um, you can, it, I mean, this is cutting edge. This is just happening over the last five years. Um, but uh, yeah, you can determine what was being transported in the amphoras and that sort of thing. So was it wine? Was it fish sauce? Was it olive oil? Was it, you know, a mixture? That sort of thing. Do you, when you're trying to locate or when people are searching for ships, um, 
is it archaeologists that are doing surveys or are for the most part or is that too difficult and you're hearing like stories like you said from fishermen from others or you know i'm sure there are people out there it sounds like there are people out there looking for treasure you know on their own that aren't necessarily uh certified uh people um how how do people come across new discoveries usually it, so again, it's a mix of things. So there are archaeologists that just go out to a new area and they do a survey um, based on either just just looking in remote sensing data like sonar, or you know they found some historical documents that say a ship sank in that area and they just go out and that sort of thing. Um, then there are certainly things that are reported, um, you know, fishermen or or divers um, or people that are treasure hunters, but they usually don't speak to archaeologists and we don't speak to them. I mean, there's ethical boundaries that don't get crossed right. when it comes to treasure hunting and that sort of thing. Um, report things to the government and then the governments will send out archaeologists. Um, but my research has, from the beginning, always been very much um, community-based. And so whenever I start a project in a new location, it starts with, and this this goes back to well, my master's was working in, in North Carolina and South Carolina and in um, Jamaica uh, projects that were community-based there. But then also um, in, when I was, all the years I was working in Albania, working with the local community, ensuring that they know about their history and then slowly teasing out things they've seen over the years and then you know, saying, oh, you found that there, let's go take a look go down there, take a look, and then explain to them what it is. And then that reinforces to them that this is their history and it's very important. And as archaeologists, we're only there for, I mean, in some cases, only a month or less per year. And so if you really are serious about the long-term preservation of these sites, uh, which, let's be honest, cultural resources are disappearing faster than natural resources, and natural resources can regenerate. Cultural resources, once they're gone, they're gone forever. So if we're serious about preserving these things, it has to be through community engagement. So all of my projects come from a community focus. So we go in, we talk to the local community, we ask permission to go search, we work with them. And, uh, and I think the results speak for themselves. I mean, with, with Greece and, and projects in Albania and elsewhere, um, the community gets really excited, really engaged. And then whenever they see a, a suspicious boat or that sort of thing, they report it to their local police and the police take action because they're all invested in the project and in their history. Um, so they're going to keep eye, an eye out, you know, year round. Interesting. Okay. Fascinating. When you say cultural resources are being lost, what, what do you mean by that? So, um, it seems like the discovery of shipwrecks peaked in the 1970s and there's been a decline since. And a lot of that was done by treasure hunters and salvers, um, especially in shallow waters, but even getting into deeper waters, um, we're, it's a declining resource. And uh, it's really sad how everybody seems to think when they find a shipwreck, it must be a pirate ship or it must have gold. And so there's a whole bunch of, of ships that were, you know, just carrying amphoras of olive oil. And they've been completely dynamited because they'll dynamite them and then they'll go down and look for gold in the bottom. Ugh. Or uh, in North Carolina, there was a really early paddle boat that was found in one of the rivers. And uh, as soon as the news got out, people went down there and thought, oh, 
it must be a pirate ship because it's in a river or something, you know, not realizing it's a paddle boat. There's no reason for there to be any gold on it. And they completely smashed it to hell and, and, and broke the timbers and everything and destroyed the site. So a lot of sites get completely destroyed, you know, so gold was transported on maybe 1%, probably less of all ships and, and transported in a significant amount on even less, but almost every ship, that gets found gets destroyed to some degree by people looking for the gold or other things of market value. I mean, uh, porcelain in the case of ships in the South China Sea and that sort of thing. So, I mean, the destruction has been widespread and, and that peaked in the seventies. Um, so it's a declining resource. Um, there's less and less found. Because, um, of, because of time and because humans are, uh, you know, not everyone. Yeah, so I mean, has the right priorities as far as, you know, archaeology goes. Yeah, I mean, I think just, it's probably just a function of it being a capitalist world. And, um, you know, so you have the introduction of the aqualung and then the, a huge increase in recreational diving. And while most divers are, are terrific and they respect, um, you know, the marine resources, but also the cultural resources, uh, there's a couple of bad apples and the widespread destruction of shipwrecks um, has gone around the globe. Uh, people looking for anything of market value. Um, so people have brought up human remains off U-boats. People have brought up weapons, bombs, um, anything that, that might be sellable. And then all the stuff that can't be sold. A lot of the times, the things that can't be sold are the things that really have a lot of value for archaeology. Um, you know, they contain a lot of information. So especially the timbers of the ship and that sort of thing. Um, if you're pulling up ceramics and that sort of stuff, you're exposing the timbers and then that reintroduces things like shipworm that eat all the wood and it disappears. Um, so we've lost a lot of really important information by people just looking for things to, to get a buck or two. Interesting. So focusing on continuing with the shipwreck focus for a moment, um, is the, you know, in this podcast, we talk about the ancient world and, uh, the Mediterranean uh, with all the trade and all the ancient cities and stuff. I mean, is that, are there other areas of the world that have that kind of sunken ancient material and ships and stuff like that? You had mentioned Jamaica in the Caribbean and um, you know, and, and, and off the coast of the United States and stuff like that. I mean, I, you know, I would assume that there, that it's a completely different kind of history happening there than it would be around the Mediterranean. You're right that there's a large amount of sites in the Mediterranean that are easily discovered. And there's been a lot of people working there. So we have a lot of information, but you have to think that, you know, human history is so small compared to human prehistory. Right. And we have, as a species, we've been traveling by boat for so long throughout prehistory. I mean, at least 70,000 years getting to um, Australia, 20,000 years getting to Cyprus. So, I mean, there's evidence of people traveling by boat for vast tracts of time. I mean, the, the new theories that are being adopted and kind of widely accepted is that um, the peopling of the Americas uh, would likely came by boat down the coast rather than through this kind of ice-free corridor. I mean, people probably traveled through the ice-free corridor, but the boat seems to... What is the, the corridor? Seems, Sorry, what is the corridor? Um, uh, an ice-free corridor um, from um, uh, the Bering Land Bridge down through Canada, yeah, down into the Americas. Okay, like from Siberia, so would have a, 
were they okay got it yeah yeah yes yeah so they would have been able to to walk on land um through the ice down so we're into going, the ice free areas okay so we're but going way now, way way back okay yep yep yeah way back so so uh 16 to 18,000 years ago okay um the, I, well the, yeah i think the earliest dates now are 12,000 below the ice but in beringia around 16,000 years ago so yeah, way back. I mean, people are probably using boats for a lot for for a lot of prehistory. And you're saying that now that some of the that sort of theory that everyone just walked across that ice bridge from Siberia into North America, you're saying that now um, there's there are new perspectives on that. That may not be the full story. Exactly. Yeah. So the the peopling of the Americas is so rapid and so quick that they spread all the way down and, and fill it out so quickly that they probably were moving by boat down the coast, down the Pacific coast to reach areas uh, uh, further down. I see. And uh, and so I mean, so while we have a ton of information about the Mediterranean, that other information is out there waiting to be discovered. It's not going to be in the you know, big piles of amphoras, which are easy to find. It's going to be in paleo landscapes because sea levels used to be 100 meters lower. It's going to be in uh, log boats and, and canoes and this sort of thing. Um, but then also, I mean, we know that there was a huge thriving Indian Ocean trade um, from the, I mean, the Greeks were traveling into the Indian Ocean for trade goods. And then, you know, booming in the Roman period, uh, there were complaints that all the wealth of the Roman Empire was being sent out into the Indian Ocean because they were buying um, things like ivory and tortoise shell and, and gold and silver and that sort of thing. Um, and then later on, I mean, you have these Arab traders that were plying the whole Indian Ocean. We just haven't found those wrecks yet. And that's a function of the environment. It's harder. I mean, there's a lot of big storms that break things up. Um, you know, ships, we don't, you know, we're still learning how those ships were constructed. Um, the trade goods, um, they're not as easily recognizable on the seafloor as amphora piles and um, uh, what else? Lots of reasons. Not as many people looking in those areas. Right. So, you know, as maritime archeology span grows and more people get looking, I mean, archeology span is the construction work of the sciences and underwater archeology, span the math is really easy. The more time you spend on the seafloor, the more you're gonna find. So, you know, I've spent a lot of time finding nothing. And the only reason why I've found so many shipwrecks everywhere is from one, talking to locals and two, just spending time looking. So there's no, there's no trickery to it or anything else. It's just spending time. And so until we get more people just diving and spending time looking for wrecks uh, in the Indian Ocean and, and um, in Australasia and, and in the Pacific, uh, we're just not going to have as many as in the Mediterranean. But they are there. Interesting. So there was a phenomenal discovery recently off of um, Northern Australia where they found a submerged um, paleo landscape. So this is, it was dry. Oh man, Jonathan Benjamin's going to kill me when I can't remember the dates, but it's, um, it's incredibly old site and um, it used to be dry. And then as global sea levels rose, it became submerged. Um, but it's a really important site just made earlier this year or just announced earlier this year. And uh, so those sites are out there waiting to be discovered all over the world. So we certainly, we certainly have um, submerged cultural heritage everywhere. Um, we just have a concentration of it in the Mediterranean that I think kind of skews 
um, the perspective. Interesting. And I know that, uh, you know, a super small percentage of the ocean has actually been explored in the sea floor. Is there, uh, is there a way I, I read a book a couple years ago, the, I think the lost city of the monkey God and it, it, uh, they're, they're using this LIDAR technology to, uh, see under the, the canopy of the rainforest in South America. I can't remember, maybe it's Central America. I can't remember all the details off the top of my head, but is there, is yes, that- in Honduras. Okay, Honduras. Is that kind yep. of, tech, is there technology like that where you can some, you know, where you can map out things and try to find stuff that doesn't seem to fit or cities, shipwrecks, stuff like that for the ocean? Absolutely, yeah. So there's a bunch of really exciting new technologies that are making things way easier. Um, so there's there's LIDAR, which is a laser system, um, laser and distance measuring. So you create a 3D map and um, certain types of lasers can see through foliage. So that's, it, it's quite useful um, to, to get through things. And, and some lasers can actually see through a couple meters of water as well. So you can use it underwater. Uh, to some extent. Um, there's also uh, a, a huge increase in machine learning and artificial intelligence for locating sites, mapping sites, analyzing data. So there's a lot of really cool techniques coming out. Um, but I think you always have to balance the technology because there is in post-World War II United States and in post-World War II archaeology, there's a huge boom of men who had come out of the war with technology and they were going to use technology to solve all the problems. And uh, there's been recently a problem of people using these new technologies without, you know, from an armchair in Chicago. I'm from Chicago, so that's why I'm saying that. Yeah. In Chicago, you know, pressing a button, turning a satellite, looking at this stuff and not talking, talking to the communities who live there. Um, so you have to balance the, the, those things with the community approach because a lot of times those communities already know it's there. You can say, I discovered a city in the jungle, but if you went there, you would see that there's people that have been living there for generations. It wasn't lost. They knew it was there. And, and so right. it, it's balancing the technology with the other methods. You know, there's no one solution for everything. And um, you might get called out if you say you discovered something and then you go find out that uh, there's a local community living there, which happened a bit with the people with the lost city of the monkey. Oh, fascinating. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I enjoyed the book um, and I wrote a review on the, on the website ancientheroes.net and I, I thought it was, it really got into kind of the details of the process of, fi of finding, quote unquote, the, the cities and kind of the technology and that's why I, I mentioned that I just didn't know if if that same kind of approach was being taken to the ocean but yeah it sounds like you have to actually it is, yeah it sounds like what you're saying is you have to actually investigate this isn't something even with technology technological tools you can't I can't in Louisville Kentucky do a very good investigation of something happening in the Mediterranean without eventually having to actually probably go there and talk to real people and figure out what's going on. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's a, uh, it's a complicated process. And actually if you're in Louisville, you should talk to Chris Begley uh, who's based there and he's done underwater and stuff on land and he mixes community and technology really, really well. Cool. Um, um, yeah. Uh, but so, I mean, with, for an underwater example, so, I mean, in February of this year, right before COVID struck, 
we started a survey of the Tiber River, uh, and we were focusing on the first six kilometers around Ostia and Portus, which were the you know the seaside harbors of Rome. And um, but we started you know going through the historical data first and what people have found in the past, and then talking to locals about local conditions. And and so we had a, a little local boat captain who knew the river really well and kind of where there were eddies and that sort of thing. And then we used the new technology on top of that. And so they all complement each other. And the new technology is incredible. I mean, you're talking about a shallow river. I think the deepest was six meters, but a lot of it was much shallower. Um, and so we were 3D scanning the bottom with this system um, by a Norwegian company called Norbit. And it's incredibly innovative. And um, it, it creates essentially like LIDAR, a 3D map of the bottom. But what they've gone and done is they've mounted a LIDAR on the side of the boat. So you're actually scanning the whole river bottom and it captures the side almost all of the sides and then you're scanning all the area above and so you can essentially delete the water and you can see everything in its whole context Whoa. so we were picking up ruins on land and the ruins underwater and we could see how they fit together wow. so the technology is incredible but you just have to make sure that you fit it into the broader context of understanding you know what's happened in the past and 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 what people know locally and that sort of thing interesting cool well in in looking at your website um, it, it talked about three areas kind of with underwater archaeology being the shipwrecks are what I think everyone's somewhat familiar with or has heard of. But then there are also caves and there are also these sunken cities or lost cities. Can you talk about the latter two a little bit and kind of um, how is it that a city, I mean, now with climate change and stuff, you know, people talk about Miami part of Miami being underwater in 50 years or something. I mean, right. I'm familiar with that concept, but were there cities, you know, some of these ancient cities that at one point were, you know, fully functioning populated cities that are now underwater or partially underwater? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, water is essential for life and transport. So a lot of cities are built on water. Um, so rivers are dynamic entities that are always moving. So you're gonna have cities that are either partially underwater from the river moving over them or far away from the current river path because it's migrated. Um, so you have a lot of movement. So I mean, in the middle of Rome, there's an area um, that's now underwater that has a Roman villa under it. Um, but then you also, on the seaside, you have a lot of change um, due to a number of forces on the seaside. And so you have a lot of cities that are in the sea. Now, you don't get cities that are extremely deep, you know, at the bottom of the Atlantic and that sort of thing. There's, there's very specific processes that we know that submerge cities. So cities, um, I, I, I think the, the big two to really know are um, eustatic sea level change. And so I know that's a very technical term, but what it means is global sea level change. Mm. And so 18,000 years ago, the ice sheets start melting. And so as that happens, global sea levels rise about 100 meters. And that evens out 5,000 years ago. So cities older than 5,000 years old, uh, which there aren't that many um, that have been found uh, or that we know of um, because, because it's so old, they could be submerged due to this eustatic sea level change, this global rise in water. Um, and so one example of that is Pablo Petri in Southern Greece, uh, which I worked for John Henderson and the effort of underwater antiquities there a couple of years ago. 
And that was a city that dated from the Neolithic into the Bronze Age. And so it caught the, the tail end of eustatic sea level change. The other one to know is isostatic sea level change, which just means localized. So as those massive ice caps melted and the weight shifted, the earth, you, you have to imagine the earth was like a basketball or, or, or you know, some sort of ball being squeezed by these really heavy ice caps. And as those left, the earth started to rebound and the shape was changing. And the shape is still changing from that weight distribution. And so in certain areas, um, land is rising. And in some places, land is, is falling. And in the places where it's falling and where you have cities built, that's where you'll have cities underwater. So a great example is Crete. So Western Crete is rebounding and rising. And so you actually have harbors that are you know, two meters above water. And then Eastern Crete is subsiding and you have cities that are in the sea in Eastern Crete. So you can actually see both happening at the same time on the island. Um, but these, this, this isostatic change you know, is usually less than a millimeter per year. So it's very, very small. So I mean, you generally don't find cities that are submerged deeper than one or two meters. So it's usually just the foundations in the sea, very small. You do have some cities that are built on top of volcano magma chambers. And as the magma comes in and out of the magma chamber, you can have huge rises. So there's Baia, which is a, a, a suburb of Naples um, off of Vesuvius. And it was built on top of this massive magma chamber. And so it's actually submerged uh, two to three meters now. And that's much deeper than you would expect from a normal sunken city from isostatic or eustatic sea level change. Okay, so it's pretty rare that you're going to be diving, let's say, in the Mediterranean and that you would be able to come across like a actual city that's underwater. I mean, that's, that's a little bit of a misnomer, I guess. Right. So it's not going to be, it's not going to be, you know, full buildings or anything like that. Okay. Um, you really only get that sort of thing, you know, with the advent of damming where people are damming and then cities are, are flooded. Uh, um, more you have this very gradual um, submergence of the cities and waves and storms lash the buildings and the buildings kind of collapse. And so you just have the foundations and roads and that sort of thing. Um, and tombs, that sort of stuff, buried um, or, or submerged in the sea. So usually just a few meters. Cool, cool. And you, you had also mentioned caves, underwater caves, as being an area that needs more attention or hasn't been explored fully. What's, what's going on with the underwater Absolutely. Cave? Yeah, this is a growing area, and I think it's really exciting. Um, I mean, I love diving, and I love challenging dives. And so I got into cave diving early on. And uh, then in 2017, I had an edited volume come out called The Archaeology of Underwater Caves, which is the first book on the topic. And I drew together authors from all over the world to write about underwater caves in their areas. And uh, there's some really interesting contributions. Um, and I think this is a, a big growth area because caves are generally cold water. Um, it's not as dynamic an environment as the ocean or rivers. And so you, you get, you know, um, you don't have such strong currents and that sort of thing. Uh, so artifacts are really well preserved, especially organic artifacts. So there's huge potential for finding amazing things in underwater caves. And there's, you know, if there's a small percentage of maritime archaeologists, there's an even smaller percentage of, you know, underwater cave archaeologists. 
Um, so there's a ton of potential. I mean, the, the most incredible example is Cosker Cave, which was found in France by a diver named Cosker. And um, it, it's off of Marseille, and the entrance is at 30 meters, um, which is, what, 120 feet or something like that. Mm. I'm yeah. bad at converting, but I don't know if I if Maybe I should be speaking ninety. I thought a meter was about three feet, yeah. but could yeah, be it's three point three. Okay, okay. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So, um, um, so he was diving, and um, he he found this entrance in this cave, and then he went in, and he went in, and up, and up, and up, and up, and then he popped up at sea level in an uh, uh, air chamber, and he looked around. He found all of these Paleolithic paintings of oh, horses man. and birds and all this kind of stuff, just like the famous caves at Lascaux and, and, and that sort of thing. So um, this cave, the entrance had once been dry back, you know, 18,000 years ago or more. Well, more because some of the paintings are 40,000 years old. When sea levels were much lower, when the glaciers were containing all the water, and people went inside and painted all that kind of stuff. And then as sea levels rose due to eustatic change, um, they covered the entrance and nobody had been in there until Kosker, you know, made the discovery in the eighties. Wow. So incredible, incredible cave. Wanna... Yeah. So that's, that's caves that are submerged due to sea level change, which there's a lot. So um, like the Mexican cenotes have incredible finds in them and they're submerged because um, you have uh, the water table shift upwards as sea levels rose. Uh, but at Hoyo Negro, they've, they've discovered a Paleo-Indian young girl, her skeleton. And she, when global sea levels were lower, she crawled down in there trying to get fresh water or perhaps hunting some animals and died, maybe due to a fall or something like that. And then sea levels rose and then the, the cave divers found her. Wow. Um, but then you also have caves that are perpetually wet. So like springs and that sort of thing. And that's my expertise is I'm interested in the Roman period and, and to some extent earlier, um, offerings that are thrown into these springs. So springs are sacred in nearly every culture. Um, they're really fascinating and, um, they're kind of, they become loci for rituals and religion and you often have offerings thrown in and uh, these have different formation processes and different types of things than you find in the caves that were once dry and then submerged. And so that's kind of what the book is about is these, these two different formation processes in these caves and how the artifacts will look and how you map them and, and how you interpret them and that sort of thing. Cool. So the springs that you're talking about, these are like, uh, what, what exactly is that? Um, it's sort of a, like a geyser type of thing. What is a, what is a spring? Exactly. Yeah, so it's um it's part of a karst system. So you know it's it's essentially a cave system below the water table. Um, you know, a lot of times they're the formations of rivers. So like the 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 headwaters at the Mississippi are a spring. Um, uh, so you have yeah, so springs are where water comes out of the ground. I see. Uh, to form rivers and creeks and that sort of thing, and then siphons are where water goes back down. And those can suck you down underwater and, and are incredibly dangerous to dive in, uh, but also contain artifacts. Um, so those are the, I mean, springs and then flooded caves are, are the two main types. But then you also have things like hot springs. Um, so there's an amazing site in Turkey called Hierapolis, uh, which is modern pomegranate. 
where you have this hot spring on top of a mountain and it's cascading down the mountainside and it's carrying calcium deposits. And so you get these incredible white calcium deposits forming pools all the way down. So it's a breathtaking, if, if you've seen photos or anything, or if anyone's visited, um, I highly recommend it, it's incredible. So you have this, this um, Hellenistic and Roman city up above where the spring is with a temple of Apollo right above the spring, but there was an earthquake and the temple of Apollo fell into the spring. And so you can actually swim around in the spring and, and the columns are, are down below you. Wow, what is, what is this site again? Hierapolis. Hierapolis, okay. Is the name of it. Yeah, Pamukkale is the modern name. And it, it's really interesting because um, for many years, it was discussed that the spring had an entrance to Hades. And uh, the Italian team that's been working there for since the 60s, I believe, um, was excavating. And they noticed at, right next to the Temple of Apollo. So you have a Temple of Apollo, you have the sacred spring, and then you have this other strange structure, which they figured out was called the plutonium. And as they dug down, um, they noticed that small creatures were dying on the, uh, on the sediments. And as they dug deeper, they found a, a hole, a, a constructed um, ashlar block entranceway. And this was the entrance to Hades. And the reason why it was the entrance to Hades is because all the gases that heat the hot spring were coming out from there. And anything that breathed that in for too long would die. So they were actually having small birds and animals breathing in those and dying on site while they were oh, excavating. Crazy. So it was a real life entrance to Hades. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. Uh, so I just have a couple more questions. I uh, won't take too much of your time. Um, so I'm... Part of this obviously is the diving aspect. I, I would assume that most underwater archaeologists become pretty great divers over time. I mean, is that true across the board pretty much? Uh, it's a mix. I mean, I think anyone can be a maritime archaeologist. You don't necessarily have to be a diver. Um, I really enjoy diving. Um, there's definitely a big diving culture within maritime archaeology, but there's a lot that don't dive at all. So, I mean, there's ships found in graves, um, you know, in Scandinavia, there's the Viking ships that are found in graves and you, you need nautical archeologists to understand the ships and how they were constructed from those graves. Mm. There are people who study harbors. Um, there's geoarchaeologists who, who try to understand sedimentation in harbors. Um, so you can be a maritime archeologist without necessarily being a diver. It's, it's um, Anyone who studies, you know, human interaction with water is, uh, I would call a maritime archaeologist. Interesting. Cool. Cool. And so as far, and as far as you go, uh, I'm interested, what are you currently researching? What are you excited about for the future? What do you have going on? Yeah. I mean, I think there's enormous potential, uh, and I would rather be a maritime archaeologist now than any other point because things are really opening up um and and there's just enormous discoveries to be made so i mean there's there's forney where we found the largest concentration of ancient shipwrecks in the mediterranean um one of my other projects um together with the superintendenza del mare in italy uh, in sicily is um, a naval battle between rome and carthage it's the only known naval battle that's been found that we've been excavating it for 14 seasons now um, it's the Battle of the Egeti Islands, which happened in 241 BC. Um, in, in Rome, we're doing the survey of the Tiber, together with the Sopranidenza of Ostia. Um, we're finding incredible things in the Tiber. Um, unfortunately, due to COVID, uh, it was canceled, but we had a project in Tanzania. So the southernmost Roman harbor um, that's known from, from sailing guides uh, was off the coast of Tanzania. 
Uh, and there's a bunch of other just really fascinating history. So we were working with a local fishing community in southern Tanzania um, to, to you know, understand their maritime cultural heritage. Uh, but that's been put off until, um, well, December. But now <laughs> with everything that's happening, it'll probably be 2021. Nice. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we've been, we've been, um, we did a training in Mongolia for counter trafficking of cultural heritage uh, last September. And uh, we've now been in discussions uh, with the UNESCO board there and with um, the National Museum in Mongolia about doing some training for maritime archaeology because they have such important underwater cultural heritage in terms of lakes and rivers. I mean, the first marine protected area in history was made by Genghis Khan, where he protected a lake. So um, there's all kinds of things um, to be found in Mongolia underwater. So we're hoping we can get back there next year and uh, and train up the local archaeologists um, and police to protect the sites um, to get underwater archaeology started there. So I mean, there's so much potential all over the world. Um, you know, I think this is this is the most exciting time for maritime archaeology. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's exciting for me, and I'm not even involved really at all. But it sounds like an awesome job. Um, you know, and it sounds like you're involved in multiple projects across the world. Uh, so thanks a lot for, for talking to us today, uh, Peter. I'll make sure that I include a link to your website. Um, and it looks like your Twitter handle is at Peter B. Campbell. Is there any other right. place you'd like to point listeners to? Um, no, that's it. Thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, if anyone has any questions, they can get in touch with me. And uh, it, it's been a lot of fun. Cool. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks. Bye, Peter. Take care. See you later. Thank you to Derek Fischer for composing the music used in this episode. As always, you can find the links to the different things we talked about and many more articles about the mysteries of the ancient world at ancientheroes.net. Talk to you soon.